Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. The Pharisees and Sadducees approached and tested him, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say, it will be good weather because the sky is red. And in the morning, today will be stormy because the sky is red and threatening. You know how to read the appearance of the sky, but you can't read the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Then he left them and went away. The disciples reached the other shore, and they had forgotten to take bread. When Jesus told them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were discussing among themselves, we didn't bring any bread. Aware of this, Jesus said, you have little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves that you do not have bread? Don't you understand yet? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you collected? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many large baskets you collected? Why is it you don't understand that when I told you, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, that it wasn't about bread? Then they understood that he had not told them to beware of, of the leaven and the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The word of the Lord. Thank you, MK, for reading that passage. So here's where I'd like for you to take out, um, well, take out probably isn't the right word, but to download and to grab those sermon slides that I mentioned. And I think the easiest way for you to do it, if you have the digital bulletin up, you just need to close that file. It should take you back to that folder, and you'll see the sermon outline for today. Another thing I wanted to mention, if you need a chair, if you're a chair short, we have plenty of chairs inside and you can borrow one of those chairs. We've been in a sermon series and we will be for the remainder of the summer in the Gospel of Matthew, calling it Jesus Unfiltered. The goal of this series as a whole is for each of us to identify the filters that we bring to Jesus. For each of us to be able to answer this question, which parts of Jesus are getting through and which parts of Jesus are not? Into my thinking, into my heart, into my life. And the reason we're doing this series, the, the goal behind it is that we would more fully know and more fully follow Jesus as he is, not as who we want him to be, not the Jesus of our own preferences and agendas, but the true Jesus. So for today's passage, the way I want to begin as we think about this text is to do a bit of an imagination experiment with you. So let's see how this goes. Can you imagine with me for a moment a world without signs, any signs of any sort? All signage is gone, street signs, Traffic signs, signs on buildings, you know, where it says this is, <laughs> this is what it is. All address uh, numbers, they're all gone. And no Google Maps either. We'll just throw that in. So can you imagine this world without any signs? 
<laughs> we'd all be very lost and confused, asking, am I on the right street? I don't know. There's no street sign. Getting on the freeway and heading in one direction or the other, say, am I going north or south? I, I, I don't even know. Am I at the right place if there's no indication, if there's no sign on the door or above the building? This is how it can feel in life sometimes for all of us, that we're living in a world without signs, especially in those seasons when we're looking for answers, when we're looking for direction, when we're looking for guidance, when we're looking for God. And we're struggling with doubt and wondering, where is he? Or where is he in this? Or where does he want me to go? Or what exactly is it that he's doing in my life right now? We would all love for there to be very clear signs to answer those questions for us and to guide us. And often it feels like there aren't any. Especially as we're living in this post-COVID world or whatever phrase we want to use to describe the times we're living in now, where there's so many questions, where the future still seems a bit uncertain, where there's hope, but we're going, what's going to happen? How will it look? We wish we could have a clear sign from God. Now, this passage that we just heard read is right before the key question that's at the center of Matthew's gospel. Everything before leads up to it, everything after really flows from it, and that is the question, who is Jesus? As you're reading the Gospel of Matthew, he really wants you just to be zeroed in and to be led to that question, who is Jesus? Right before we get to that passage, we'll talk about that next week, is this passage all about signs, right? The religious leaders come to Jesus and say, we want a sign before we're able to know who you are. So we're going to talk about signs. And I have a bunch of pictures of signs for you. I've been using pictures of signs in my sermons, I know. So I'll probably run out. You probably won't see these again for a long, long time. So have that sermon outline ready. We're going to look at the signs we should follow and look for to know it's Jesus or not. Signs we ask for the signs we miss, the signs to beware, and the sign we are given. First, the sign that it's Jesus. So the first picture there is a sign of the peak, Mount San Jacinto Peak. When you're climbing up, this is one of the only peaks I've been to, local peaks. When you're climbing up uh, to the peak and you're, you're, you're climbing for miles and miles and you're tired and your destination is, I want to stand on the actual peak of this mountain because I just sweat and I got tired and I want to make sure I accomplish my goal. But when you get up there, like any of the peaks, you're not quite exactly sure where it is, right? You're, is this the peak? Is this the highest point on this mountain? That's why there is a sign and there's actually a plaque underneath the sign that says, this is it. This is the real peak. And so you can stand there and feel like, I did it. There are a lot of groups, there are a lot of people that claim to represent Jesus, and it can be very confusing to us at times. It can be very disheartening because there's so much division and disagreement. And many of the groups would say, we are representing Jesus. And a group here on the other side would say, no, we are representing Jesus. How can we tell when it's really Jesus or when it's people using Jesus for their own agenda or purpose? 
There are a number of answers to that question, and I think it's a question we've wrestled with this past year plus. So many different opinions, so many places of disunity and disagreement, and we go, what does Jesus think? How do I know it's him? This passage gives us one of the clearest and most important signs that can show us when it's really Jesus. Look at verse 16, if you have your Bible handy. It says, the Pharisees and the Sadducees approached Jesus. So this entire passage is about Jesus' interaction with these groups. And then the second half, 5 through 12, is about him processing his interaction with these two groups, with his followers, with the disciples. That's 5 through 12. Four times in this passage, the phrase, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, is used. Now, who are these people? What's going on? Well, there's a bit of surprise and shock here in this passage, and it would have been very interesting and shocking to the original readers, the way that Matthew wrote this, because the Pharisees and the Sadducees were polar opposites. They were on opposite ends of the religious and the political spectrum at the time. They disagreed with each other about almost everything, but here they're lumped together as one group. Matthew, in describing them, uses one article, the Pharisees and Sadducees. And it's really significant that he doesn't say the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says one the. And that's very intentional, but also very shocking. For us today, it would be like saying the conservatives and the liberals. See, there's two thes there. Matthew's saying, no, the conservatives and liberals as one, the far right and the progressive left, did this or said this as one together. And you might be thinking, well, when did that happen? And I don't have an answer. It, ne it never happens. When do they present a united front? When do they agree on anything? And that's what's happening right here. The Pharisees, they were the religious fundamentalists. One commentator says they were the biblically serious. There was no compromise with the culture. And in their zeal to avoid compromise, not only did they have their respect for the word of God, but they developed an entire tradition around the word. They added to the word and the law to make sure that nobody broke the actual word. So they were the religious fundamentalists of the day. Sadducees, on the other hand, you could call them the secularists. They were the culturally sophisticated. They compromised with Rome and were okay doing it because they sought to find a way. Let's maintain our faith, but come on, guys. Let's also keep our faith, but let's fit in. Let's work with the culture. And in doing so, they subtracted from Scripture and modified its laws. The Sadducees of the time only accepted the first five books of Moses and everything else they said, no, that's just a suggestion. That's just optional. So here's the sign. The sign that it's really Jesus is that both these groups unite against him. He wasn't on the side of the fundamentalists. He wasn't on the side of the secularists. Jesus rattled and challenged and upset all of them. He doesn't fit either category. If both the traditionalists and the conservatives and the liberals and the progressives are upset, then that's a sign, that's a good sign that Jesus is there. He's way too gracious. 
for the fundamentalists. He's way too firm for the secularists. So for us, how can we tell? How can we tell when it's really Jesus or it's when people are using Jesus for their own ends? A sign is that Jesus, he just never fits into our normal us versus them categories. When we say, is it that side of the spectrum or that? Or is it in the middle? Jesus says no to all of it. He challenges the us and them thinking that we have. He calls them both out. That's the sign to look for. So if one group is very comfortable and very confident we speak for Jesus, that's probably a sign that it's not him. That's first. Second sign. Well, this sign, kind of a cheesy sign if you see the picture. It says that way. Very clear. Go that way with the finger pointing in that direction. This represents the signs we ask for. Because this is the kind of sign that I would want when I'm wondering, where's Jesus? And what does he want me to do? Like, just give me that sign that point, points me in the direction. Just show me which way and I'll do it. These are the kinds of signs we ask for and wish we had. If God just did that, I'd know and I'd do it. So these two groups come together and they unite against Jesus to test him and they say, so show us a sign from heaven. And what they're asking for when it says a sign from heaven is not just any old miracle. Yeah, we know you've done some miracles. We don't want just any old miracle, like a small miracle, which we can assume many of them had already seen and heard that Jesus had done. Small, like healing the sick, causing the lame to walk, curing blindness, casting out demons, even feeding thousands of people. No, 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 that, not enough. We've heard other people that have claimed to do that. We want a bigger sign. We want a mega miracle. We want a finger pointing in the sky. This is the Messiah. They wanted a sign from heaven. Jesus says no to this. Very clearly and straightforward, no. We ask, couldn't he have proven them wrong and proven himself right if he just said, okay, let's do it. Clouds in the sky say, this is the Messiah. You know, the sky goes dark. The sun is just dropped out of sight. We could think of all these incredible signs from heaven. Jesus would have proven his point. Why didn't he do it? Couldn't he have? Wouldn't it have proven them wrong and convinced them? Well, the answer is yes and no. Yes, he could have made the skies do whatever he want, wanted to do. Yes, he could have called down fire from heaven. But no, because would that have changed any of their minds and any of their hearts? What's going on here is as these Pharisees and Sadducees are coming to Jesus, they're not looking for reasons to believe and obey. They're looking for reasons not to believe and not to obey. They're looking, no matter what Jesus says, to say, see, oh, Jesus didn't give us a sign. He's not the Messiah. See, oh, he gave us this sign, but we can explain that away. This is not a sincere seeking after Jesus. What's going on here? It is a test. In verse 1, it's said, they came to Jesus in order to test him. What they were saying to Jesus is, prove yourself to me on my terms. Pass my test. It's not an honest seeking, it's a demand. In verse 4, Jesus calls it for what it is. 
He says, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. It, it's saying, show me what I demand. Come to me on my terms, and then I'll listen to you, and then I'll follow you. And actually, in a strange way, Jesus saying no to this is further proof that he is who he says he is. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, God does not submit to our tests. If there is a God who created the entire universe, whom we owe everything to, he doesn't submit to our tests. We submit to his. So how might this apply to us? Sometimes the issue in our lives is not that we don't know what to do. Sometimes the issue in our lives is not that we don't have enough reason or evidence or that God has not shown us more than enough. The issue is that we are saying to God, show me what I demand. Come to me on my terms, then I'll believe in you, or then I'll follow you, or then I'll take the direction that you want me to go. The issue sometimes for us, when we are in a place where we are saying, God, just show me a sign, we're actually not looking for reasons to believe and follow, we're looking for reasons not to believe and not to follow what is already clear to us. And when Jesus called them an evil and adulterous generation, it wasn't just a phrase that popped to his, in his mind like, hey, let me come up with an intense phrase here, evil and adulterous generation. He's actually using a phrase from the Old Testament. This phrase was used to describe the wilderness generation that came out of Exodus and was led through the desert. They had seen so many signs. They were delivered from Egypt, the greatest power in the world at that time. They had seen all the plagues. They had seen the Passover. They were delivered through the Red Sea that parted before them, and they were fed every day manna from heaven. Was that enough signs for them? Well, in Exodus chapter 17, they come to a camp, and it's wilderness, it's desert, there's no water, and they just stop there and go, what is this place? Give us water. And they start complaining, and they come to Moses and say, why did you bring us out of Egypt just so that we would die of thirst? Moses named that place Massah, testing, and Meribah, quarreling, because they complained and tested God, saying, in Exodus 17, 7, we don't know, is God with us or not? These are people who had seen the greatest of the greatest of signs. And here they were in a new situation in the desert going, we don't know. We haven't seen enough. Is God here or is he not? The issue this teaches us is not lack of signs, or the need for more signs. The issue was the heart. It's the question we should ask ourselves, especially when we're struggling, especially when we don't know what to do and we feel like, I just need a sign. Are we looking for reasons to believe and trust and follow God on His terms? Or are we looking for reasons not to? Which leads to the third point, and you can look at the third picture there. 
It's a picture of our favorite sign, a sign of the speed limit. Consumer Reports says the number one reason or excuse given why people speed, maybe you can guess it, is I didn't see the sign. I had no idea what the speed limit was. Like, you know, I didn't know it wasn't 90 here on the freeway or 50 in this residential neighborhood. I never saw the sign, right? Sometimes in our desire for a sign, sometimes it's due to genuine confusion and uncertainty that we have. We just don't know and we're struggling. Sometimes, though, it is an excuse to avoid the signs that we have already been given. In verses 2 and 3, Jesus says, guys, you're asking for a sign. You guys, you, you can read the signs of the weather. You know how to tell what, what weather is coming here. But you, the spiritual and religious leaders, the ones who know the scriptures the best, you can't read, he says, the signs of the times that are all around you. You have no real spiritual discernment. Just like the Exodus generation, he says, you have seen so many signs, my healings, my miracles of feeding, driving out of demons, and your response is no, we need to see another one. And so here's the point that this is making for us. We can explain away any sign that we don't want to see. We can explain away any sign that's pointing us or leading us to do something that we don't want to do. So there is a song from my childhood that no matter how hard I try, I cannot forget it. And I can't decide whether I hate the song or I love it. I don't even know. It's one of those songs. It's that kind of song. And maybe you know it. It's, <laughs> it's called The Sign by Ace of Bass. Do you know that song? It's just, it's, it depends on which generation you're from. It says, I saw the sign and I opened up my eyes. Okay. Yeah, I know. It's, it's not good. I saw the sign and I opened up my eyes. Well, what this text is saying to us is that's backwards. We have to open up our eyes to see the signs. If our eyes aren't open, we'll miss the signs. No matter what they are, no matter how impressive they are, we need to open up our eyes first, and then we'll see the signs. That's what Jesus is saying. It's like, here you guys are coming to me, and your eyes are closed, and your hands are over your eyes, and they're saying, I don't see any signs. Where are the signs? Show me a sign. Until our eyes are open, we won't see any of them. Application for us, how might this be true of me? How might my eyes be shut? Something C.S. Lewis wrote in his book on miracles is helpful here. He said, miracles are a retelling in small letters of the very same story, which is written across the whole world in letters that are too large for us to see. And you might say, well, what signs have I seen from God? I haven't seen any miraculous signs from God. What, what are these large print letters? Well, Romans 1 says, turn there now, that every human being has seen signs. Every human being has seen the large print letters. And so it says, in 
in Romans 1, 20. For God and His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what He has made. The Bible says the signs are there. It's large print. It's written everywhere. As Roman 1, Romans 1 goes on, the signs are clear and they show us all this. We've all seen enough signs to know the difference between the true God and a God we make on our own terms. As Romans 1 goes on, Paul says we have these large print letters, but we, we suppress the truth because we know if there is a God like that, then I have to live on his terms. But instead of doing that, he says, we made all kinds of images of God on our terms. Instead of worshiping and glorifying and thanking the creator, we have worshiped the creation, a God of our own creation. This text is saying to us, it's not a matter of signs. It's a matter of whether our eyes are open, whether we're reading the large print or suppressing the large print and closing our eyes. And verse 4 is a very sobering verse. We kind of just read it and go on, but it says, Jesus left them. It's a strong word, the word left. The word is to abandon or forsake. The idea here is there's nothing more Jesus could say or do for them. They were already convinced and Jesus, it's saying and it's warning us, Jesus leaves people to themselves who have this attitude, whose eyes are closed shut to him, which Paul, the Apostle Paul says in Romans, the same thing, God gave them over to the gods of their own making on their terms. And that's where life unravels. Fourth sign. As Jesus is leading them to this point, he's interacting with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and now he takes his disciples aside, and he says, beware. And so here's the sign. This is a sign from where I grew up in Florida. Beware of alligator. Please do not feed the wildlife. Yeah, there are real signs like that. And at first, if you've never been to Florida or lived there, it's fun for me to, like, scare people about alligators. They're actually, there's not many bites and attacks, but there are some, and you need these signs. And you wonder, well, gators are so big, it's hard to miss an alligator. Why do you need a sign like, beware, there's a gator? Because they're lurking hidden in the water. And if you do see them, all you see are their little eyes poking out. Jesus gives us a beware of sign here. He says, beware of something, it's hidden, it's very hard for you to see. Unless you know to beware of it, you won't see it taking hold in your life and in your heart. He says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What is leaven? Bakers here will know what leaven is, but leaven is the rising agent in dough that causes the entire loaf of bread to rise together, right? You only need a little bit. And at this time, it could have been a portion of already leavened dough mixed into unleavened dough. It's small, it's undetectable, it's invisible, but it grows. And as it grows, it becomes pervasive and it affect, affects the entire loaf of bread. Leaven is a metaphor for a negative spiritual influence that can contaminate and ruin something and take over. 
Leaven is a metaphor for us looking at something and going, what's a little bit going to do? What's a tiny little bit really going to affect? And yet, it spreads throughout. What is the leaven Jesus says we should beware of? Verse 12, after the disciples are confused by this, they think he's talking about actual bread. He's saying, no, I'm trying to get across to you something very important. You don't have to worry about your material needs. Were you not there for the feeding of the five and the feeding of the 4,000? He says, no, beware of a kind of teaching. And here is where it gets even more shocking because Jesus says, just like he said, the Sadducees and Pharisees, he says, the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The leaven is the teaching. But the teaching of these groups had almost nothing in common. What do the fundamentalists and the secularists share? What is it that they have in common? And there's a lot of debate and discussion about what could this teaching be. I think it boils down to this. Beware of demanding a God on your terms. Beware of any teaching that says you can have a God on your terms. This is what they both had in common. Each in their own way said we have God figured out so that when God in the flesh is standing right in front of them, they couldn't see him. What, what could the ultra-religious and the secularists have in common? Well, let me, let me explain how I see this at work. Those who are religious seek a God that they can control by adding things to his word. Why? So that in my obedience to the rules that I make, in my obedience to the rules that I invent, the terms that I create around my God, I can put that God in my debt. I say, I obey you. I obey these terms that I have set. And so you owe me. That's, the, that's at the heart of the religious mindset. The secular approach says, I can control God by subtracting and editing and cutting and pasting the parts of him and his word that fit with the cultural mindset of the day. I set the terms, and guess what? Just like the religious version of God affirms whoever creates those religious terms, the secular version of God also affirms and agrees with me always. Whether it's the religious God I can control, the secular God I can control, either way, that God is in my debt. Either way, that God, because I set the terms, that God always affirms me, agrees with me, and oh, coincidentally, always disagrees with my enemies. Jesus says, beware of this. Beware of any teaching that says you can have a God on your terms. This attitude is like leaven. It's subtle and small, and it happens in our hearts in almost indetectable ways. But if left undetected, it affects our entire heart and soul. And how do we know that this leaven might be inside of us? Maybe the best test is self-righteousness. That thing that we can see so well in other people. But somehow, we always excuse ourselves from it, right? 
the secularists say, look at the self-righteousness of the religious people. The religious people say, wait, you secularists are just are being as, just as self-righteous as us, thinking you are better and above us. Religious people look down on others who don't follow their rules, thinking they're better than all the rest. Secularists do the same thing. They look down on the religious who are so simple and who believe they might not use religious labels or do religious things, but you would say, well, because why? Because I'm better than all that. The leaven to beware of, the leaven to look out for is that self-righteousness. Last point. My last little picture of a sign here, it's kind of a silly sign. It doesn't really exist, I don't think. It says, if you're looking for a sign, this is it. Kind of a tongue-in-cheek Ironic sign, like, this is it. Here's a sign. Sign is a sign. Jesus said to this group of people, and his disciples had heard him as well, something he had already said in Matthew chapter 12. He said, you come to me asking for signs, you're only going to get one sign, the sign of Jonah. What does that mean? Well, you may know something of the story of Jonah. What sign did Jonah give the people of Nineveh? What miracle did Jonah do? None. He, he was the sign. Jonah was the sign. The story is Jonah was a Jewish prophet. He was sent by God to go to Israel's enemies, to Assyria, to the capital city of Nineveh. He didn't want to go. So he got in a boat and went in the other direction. God sent a storm. He ended up saying, this is all because of me. Throw me overboard, I want to die. Instead of dying, God sent a fish, rescuing him from death and sending him back to Nineveh. And so he went, as it were, a prophet who died and rose again, was sent to the city of Nineveh. And when he preached, he was surprisingly effective. He was the only sign the people needed. He was the sign to the Ninevites that the God of Israel was real and they needed to turn to him. What does all that mean about Jesus? Here it is, the sign that we are given, the sign from God for the world is Jesus. You say, well, isn't that always the answer? <laughs> Let me explain. Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. Here is the irony of it. Like this is the sign sign. They say, show us a sign. And Jesus, the son of God, he's standing right in front of them. Now, you might be a little bit disappointed that this is, this is it. This is the answer. I haven't talked about how you can get a sign from God. I haven't told you, here's the sign you can get from God when you're doubting. I haven't said anything about, here's how to get a sign from God when you don't know which direction to go. Here's what you can do, and he'll give you a sign. I haven't said any of that because I don't have anything to say about that. God has not given us a way to get signs from him that we can trust. God has not given us a way to get signs from him to assure us. He has not given us a way to get those signs from him because he's given us something so much better, friends. He's given us a person we can trust when we doubt. He's given us a person who can assure us 
when we struggle. He's given us a person we look to for guidance and assurance when everything else seems unclear. He has given us himself, incarnate, crucified, and risen. Do we need a sign that we are known and understood no matter what we are experiencing, no matter what suffering we are going through? We are given the sign of Jesus, incarnate. Do we need a sign that we are loved and valued and not abandoned ever? Well, we look to Jesus, who was crucified because he loved us. Do we need a sign that when we fail and fall, we are loved and secure still? We look to Jesus, crucified. Do we need a sign that no matter what is going on, no matter how dark it looks for us and around us, that evil, sin, and suffering will not have the last word? Then we look to Jesus, the risen one. In 1 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul said, the Jews ask for signs, like here, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. There's no more humbling sign than this. This is the sign we get. We come to God not on our terms, but on His. The cross says, We come empty-handed. We come bringing nothing. We don't come on our terms. We come on His. But there is no better sign. When we are in a world that feels like there are no signs for me, I'm lost and I'm confused, we are given the sign of Jesus. We are given a person that we can trust. We are given a person who came for us, who died for us, who rose again, and who is ascended. And when it feels like we're in a world, we're in a situation, and we don't know where to look, we don't have any signs, we look to Him. He is the sign. And there's no better sign than Him. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, sometimes we do feel like that's not enough, that we need something more when we're lost, we struggle with the truth, we struggle to be assured, we struggle to know which way to go and what you're doing in our lives. Sometimes we're just like the Sadducees and Pharisees. We, just, we demand something that we would think is unmistakable and clear. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for this text. Thank you for the words of Jesus. They're hard for us to hear because some of us here, we have our hands over our eyes and we have hardened hearts. We don't want to do or trust what you've already shown and revealed to us. So I pray you'd soften our hearts and open our eyes. And I pray wherever we are, whatever we're thinking, whatever we're dealing with, wherever we feel lost and confused, that you would turn our eyes, open our hearts to see Jesus. As we turn our hearts 
as we move to this time of communion. I pray you would use this time to lead us, to guide us, to assure us, to soften our hearts, to open our hearts to receive the best sign we could ever be given, that there is a Savior who loves us and who is victorious. And we pray in his name, amen.